0: Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. Our prayer is that these episodes bless and equip you in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal as a community is to become more like Jesus and to offer Him through our lives to those around us here in Austin, Texas. More like Jesus, more for others. For more on our church, check out atxtribe.org. God bless. We are uh, continuing a series called Reconstructing Faith. And what we're doing is we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, as kind of a a reference point for what kind of reconstruction we should be doing. We've been talking about this now for, I think this is five weeks. Um, and, And everyone, what we've laid out at the beginning was everyone deconstructs on some level in their faith. And everyone reconstructs in their faith. And We're invited by Jesus over and over and over, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount as we're going to look at today, to imagine our humanity, to imagine what it means to flourish in a very specific way of processing our reconstruction and our deconstruction, a humanity that belongs to God and to others as we talked about last week. A humanity that is, that is free and flourishing through the right limitations of what Jesus refers to as the narrow path. And a humanity that is offering that community of love to others around them. And so, let's start with Jesus. Amen? Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there if you'd like. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter 5. This is is Jesus doing his work of of deconstructing and reconstructing for people. And I appreciate what Marcus prayed about today, because that's actually exactly what we're going to talk about today as we look to reconstruct our faith. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, "You've, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the good, on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? or not even the tax collectors doing that, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. No pressure, just be perfect, right? (laughs) But Jesus is offering a reconstruction, a new view of others in our lives. He says, you've heard it was said, but I tell you. And this others, meaning those who don't belong to us. And even more specifically, he uses the word enemy. Those who would actively oppose us. And the word also means those who we just, we just kind of look at and we find repulsive. So those who would oppose you and those who you look at and you go, oh, that, that's, those are not my people. He says, these are the type of people you are now to love. You are to be a person who offers them the kingdom through your love for them. And if you want to experience perfection, which in this word, we have it translated perfection in English, but it's actually a Greek word that it means to be complete, to be mature, to have a complete, a mature love. Love if you want that kind of complete, mature love as your father is complete and mature in his love, then you have to love your enemies. You have to love the other, the one that repulses, the one that opposes, just as your father in heaven does. Social psychologists tell us that we are, as humans, predisposed to an us versus them mentality. It's what refer, what's referred to as social identity theory. Uh, and without going into all the details, because I'm no expert, I just do enough research for these kind of things to get a taste of it, just to be dangerous, right? Um, but it essentially says this, hey, we categorize the world into groups. We do this as, as young children. My son, uh, our family was swimming in the, the river this week, earlier this week, and my son He's learning all this stuff at school, and he, my six-year-old he says to me, um, "You know, Dad, I can't be president." And I said, well, "Okay, why?" And he said, "Well, because to be president, you have to be born in America. I live in Texas." <laughs> and we were, <laughs> I was like, "All right, I don't know what they're teaching you at that school." <laughs> and I, I appreciate the pride of Texas, but you are also in America, right? But we categorize the world into groups in this way. We identify in a group or a combination of groups, and that becomes us, right? Our music, our race, our style, our generation, our gender, whatever it is, it becomes us. And then we compare our group more favorably than other groups. We're better because... Dot, 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 right? And a lot of this is subconscious, but some of it, you know, I think we could take a very easy example like with sports. It's actually pretty overt, right? You have die hard Yankees fans or die hard Red Sox fans, and better not wear the wrong hat in the wrong city. I don't know if there are die hard Astros fans. Are there die hard, uh, you know? The Astros fans are dying. <laughs> They're dying Astro fans, not die hard. Um, Maybe slightly closer to home, uh, we have the right versus left politically, right? Trump or Biden, progressive or conservative, and all the subcategories that go with that, pro-life, pro-choice, immigration, nationalism, whatever, all the other things. There's clearly an us versus them in our world today. And too often, I think to our shame, the, the, the Christians have tried to kind of appropriate Jesus To be one side or the other. To bolster our kind of political power. And it's actually, if you read the Gospels, it's simply divorce of gospel reasoning to try to do that. Because Jesus, today, just like in his day, would not be defined by the conservative or the liberal parties of his day. In fact, both of them put him to death because he wouldn't submit to their power. Nothing has changed. Okay, so maybe even a little closer to home. It got very quiet in the room when I said that. How about Christians? Us as Christians, as we define Christianity, and them. eh, We're not really sure. They're not like us because they believe in blank about gender roles. Or they're not like us because they believe in blank about communion or worship or whatever it is, right? The Christian story has too often been these schisms of us and them. You just do your research, it's all over, right? 2,000 years we've been arguing over things. And then finally, I think at a demonic level, as Marcus shared, you know, this is where all things racist find their grounding. This is where something like, you know, replacement theory gets its psychological grounding, is in an us versus them. But Jesus comes and he gives a third option, as he always beautifully does. He will not fall into a dichotomy. He will not fall into like, hey, just this or that. He always gives this third option. Not us, not them, but all of us together. And he points out three things in this. He says, God sends goodness to all people in the form of sunshine and rain. So we get a little bit of rain this week, go, okay, God is good. And he's being good to those I don't like to. And when it's sunny, you go, oh, it's such a beautiful day. And those who are repulsive to me or who, who oppose me, they are thinking the same thing. God is good he is bent towards good, predisposed towards love for all people. Two, Jesus makes the point that his followers, this is really powerful, his followers are really no different than the people they despise. He uses tax collectors and pagans. He says you're really no different than those people that you despise if you've divided up the world into an us versus them mentality. instead of seeing yourselves as all together, if that's how you view others, you're really no different. It may be the MAGA hat, or the BLM patch, or the rainbow bracelet, or the John 316 t-shirt that you consider the other. But Jesus says if, if you and I are unwilling to embrace them with a greeting, to acknowledge their humanity as you are human, he says, then you're really no better for understanding these teachings. You're no better for hearing these teachings. You lack the reward of God, he says, because you still have enemies. Think about that for a moment. And then third he invites us into an obedience of perfection. Again, we've talked about this this complete and mature love that imitates God's love, one that stands as a peacemaker, specifically making inroads, making inroads to provide redemptive reconciliation in relationships. No more us versus them, but all together. Here's what's really important about this message. It doesn't happen through preaching. I was driving yesterday in South Austin, and there were some believers out there with signs and bullhorns and family, you know, people holding up signs about Jesus and repentance and heaven and hell. And there were people driving by. And you know how you kind of, you're at a stoplight and you just people watch as people drive by and go past you? And I was just watching these people just honk their horns, these young couple, and just giving them the bird. There was an us versus them moment right there. Why doesn't this work through just preaching about it, teaching about it, getting a bullhorn out there and going, hey, love your enemies. Why doesn't it work that way? Because it's not actually embodied. Jesus comes and he offers this as a living example in proximity and in relationship with us. Are you with me right there? In fact, if you start over at the beginning of this sermon, we're not going to go there necessarily, we're not going to read the whole thing, but, but he starts the sermon by congratulating the poor and the persecuted. He goes, Because your love is going to stand out greater. As you love those who oppose you. Because you have more who oppose you. You have more who will persecute you. More who are looking to hold you down. Your love is going to stand out even greater as you love your enemies. Congratulations. Be blessed. Be happy. He says this in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your, sh- your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And what is that light that he's talking about? It's the love of the Father in heaven. Embodied in our lives. This is why preaching doesn't change things. This is why getting a bullhorn and teaching people to love their neighbors will not ultimately change the world. It's going to take good deeds in the form of loving your enemies. Your enemies. This is not an intellectual pursuit. You cannot Learn your way to becoming more like Jesus. You must actually obey. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? It's quiet. You see, the way to getting that message out into the world about a gracious, loving father is gonna happen through you tomorrow morning with your coworker in the office. That one that really just, mm, you know that one, right? Right? just grinds your gears. It's gonna happen through you this week with your in-laws. It's gonna happen through you this week with your boss or you this week with your barista or whoever the other is in your life. The barista is the one that got you guys, is that the one? (laughs) All right, You you got some stuff built up about your barista. But the perfect love that Jesus is talking about, this complete love, it's going to take deeds. It's going to take action on your behalf. You, as the light of the world, loving your enemies. I was raised in a uh, surprisingly mostly white community. You're like, that's not surprising. Um, and it was, I, I was raised with mostly white friends. And there were you know, kind of people of color that maybe I went to church with or maybe kind of came in and out of my, ser- friends, my circle of friends, but, but essentially it was pretty one-dimensional. Uh, I was 20 years old, 19 going out 20, and I moved to Los Angeles, and I got exposed to suddenly this broad spectrum of cultural diversity. If you've ever lived in Los Angeles, specifically in Long Beach, California, it is an incredibly diverse place. And, um, and after a short time in L.A., my friend, he had, uh, who was living with the time, he had met some, a group of Christians there, and they started inviting him to come to church. And he gets baptized, and he starts inviting me to come to church, and I'm kind of putting him off. And finally I go just to kind of get him off my back to get him to stop inviting me to church. I'm like, all right, I'll go with you one time. Um, but what happens is I meet this really diverse group of people who are actually committed to following Jesus and to loving one another and to sharing that message to others. And they're doing so in such a radical way I had never experienced. They're subverting all cultural norms of who's in and who's out. And it blew me away. One, that there was a bunch of people who actually knew the Bible, who could teach it, who weren't in the paid ministry somewhere. And two, that they were willing to extend themselves to meet with me, to give me rides, to sit down over chips and salsa, to come to my house, whatever it took, to sit down with me and to teach me about how to follow Jesus myself. There's all kinds of different people. One of my friends who I met was this guy named Jay. And Jay, um, Jay was a young black man. He was raised in South Central in really some rough areas. And, and I remember him telling me stories about like playing in his front yard in the early 90s and there's drive-bys going by and I'm getting grazed by bullets as he's just a kid playing in his front yard. Um, and if you know anything about L.A. in the late 80s, early 90s, there were all kinds of race riots and I remember talk telling me stories about getting beat up on the way home from school just for being black. There was Latino and black uh, rivalries. Whole, whole high schools would go to war against each other. Um, not to mention profiling and all the other stuff that was happening In the 90s in LA. You might have heard something about it, right? So he's telling me, I'm just, we're so different. Our upbringing is so different. Our background is so different. Who we are fundamentally as people are so different. But you know what? Jay taught me about the cross. This is why the water's here. And he taught me about how to follow Jesus and how to wrestle in prayer and how to do this thing called leading a small group, which I was like, I don't even know what that is, but okay. Um, He he taught me how to lead songs. He taught me how to come to church early and serve. Wow, there's a novel idea, right? Um, And not all of it was explicit. A lot of it was implicit. It was just me hanging out with him, spending time with him. He's giving me rides. We're hanging out. We're having a meal together. I'm sitting in a Bible study with him as he's studying the Bible with somebody else now, or whatever that was, but he was letting his light shine to me. And it was teaching me something about the love of God. You see, Jesus didn't come to reform society into a more godly group of countries. He didn't come to take over a government. Instead, he chose to create an altogether new culture of people. He calls it a family to reconstruct an altogether new type of people who would subvert the world's categories, the dividing, hostile walls, and who would do so in a manner of treating their enemies like family. The first century church becomes this diverse, blend of culture and economic status and racially diverse and all kinds of stuff happening. And there was, you can read through the first century, you know, the letters there. It's, it's not an easy go. There's a lot of trouble that's involved with it, but they're committed to something. It wasn't a colorblind community. It was a community that celebrated their diversity, but they were unified in something greater than themselves, They were unified, not in an us versus them worldview, but in a worldview of, hey, we all together are sinners saved by grace. And we serve a king who is shaping us into a new type of people. Does that make sense? How did Jesus do this? He teaches his followers to reconstruct their view of faith, to reimagine their humanity by doing away with one major category of people in their lives. Enemies. Not that the enemies themselves suddenly stopped considering themselves enemies, right? But that the follower of Jesus would no longer treat them as such. The follower of Jesus now would choose to love those people. And he modeled this for his disciples as a good rabbi would. We're going to take a look here at John 14, but just to kind of set the scene for those of us who aren't familiar with it, Jesus is the Last Supper. Jesus is with his 12 disciples before he goes to the cross. And he takes on the role of a servant. And he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of these disciples. Now, this is first-century Palestine. No, you know, public utilities, if you know what I mean. So everything's in the street. This is hot, dusty, open-toed, sandaled feet. And these are all guys, so you can guess, right? But Jesus takes on this posture of really what is a faceless, nameless servant. You would go into a first-century church or first-century building, home. Usually somebody who uh, was a little bit wealthier would have a servant there to wash your feet but you wouldn't even make eye contact with them. you just kind of stick your feet out, let them take care of you, and then you'd go into the person's home. This is a faceless role that Jesus takes on. He humbles himself, and he washes their feet. In verse 12 of John 14, it says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on, and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me Teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's, that's what I am. For all those who question whether or not Jesus ever called himself God. That right there says it. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, this is the promise. He says, now you will, now now that you know these things, not that you informationally know these things, but now that you've experienced me doing this with you, I've done a good deed in front of you. I've embodied this teaching before you. He says, you will be blessed if you, what? Do them. And he goes on to disclose that in the room of those 12 that he just washed their feet, there is one there who actually does not consider him Lord, who does not submit to him as God, and who is going to be a traitor, who's going to betray him to his enemies. He's talking about Judas, right? But do you know that John 6 tells us Jesus always knew it was Judas? This wasn't like a revelation somewhere down the line where he's like, Are you the guy? He always knew. He always knew. And yet, Judas was still invited to dinner. Judas was still, had a sense of belonging with the 12. Judas was still humbly served and prayed over and loved and taught and walked with and cared for by his Lord. And if you read this whole chapter in context, John actually bookends this scene with the story of Judas. What's he pointing out? That what Jesus is talking about here, the point that Jesus is making is not just about being a good servant to the brothers and sisters. He is specifically making the point that what Jesus is saying you will do and be blessed for is if you love your enemies. As I've loved Judas. Paul backs this up by saying our battle is not against flesh and blood. There are spiritual forces at work and we have spiritual weapons to fight with. But our battle is never against flesh and blood. And so Jesus invites his followers to imagine a world where they have no enemies. Can you imagine a world where you have no enemies? And to live in a kingdom Of love now, as they will someday for eternity. To practice that, to embody that in good deeds, to let that good light shine now, as it someday will for all of humanity. And he invites them to reconstruct their faith in this way. And to the point, you can only do this in community. You can only learn to love the other by loving one another. Because whoever the other is politically for you, they're in this room right now. And so the body of Christ is actually a place where we practice this love. We love one another. We love our enemies, those who are opposed to us, those who we just kind of find disgusting for what they believe or what they think. Or maybe actions that they've taken in their past or things they've posted. We love and we learn over time to embody this kind of love and he holds out this promise. You see, we categorize the world, these types of group that exist, religious, non-religious, black, white, Latino, men, women, etc. We identify as a group of who is us and who is them And we compare ourselves favorably. We all do this. But Jesus is inviting us to reshape something. What does all this have to do with reconstruction? If you are deconstructing and reconstructing based on those who have hurt you, who you consider enemies in or outside of the church, you are no longer deconstructing and reconstructing in the way of Jesus. If the outcome of your reconstruction is that you still have enemies, you have failed to reconstruct in the way of Jesus. Are you with me right there? You are not building on the rock, if that's the outcome. You are not on the narrow path. You are not living out this perfect love. And you will miss the blessing of the kingdom of God actualized in your life. Jesus takes this myopic dichotomy of us and them, and he calls us to reimagine ourselves belonging to God, belonging to others, even to our enemies. And this is the thing he says he invites us to to grab a hold of a promise to be blessed if we will do the things he's inviting us to do, if we will take on those good deeds. And so now ours is what professor of missiology Scott Hagley calls a crisis of response. Don't you love that? A crisis of response. And what he points out is that when there is a promise, we have a crisis of response. The promise and call of God precipitates. It brings forward a crisis in our lives. By offering an alternative view and horizon to which we are invited to respond. When the voice of God breaks the silence, we are confronted with a new with the new and unexpected horizon opens up that previously was not imagined or of which we were only vaguely aware. We are placed in a position to respond. To go to the land that God shows us. He's talking about Abraham having to choose, will I go? Will I obey? Will I take this thing that now Jesus says, now you know you will be blessed if you do this. Will I obey? When we understand the kind of reconstruction that Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's inviting us into to experience in our humanity, we are faced with a crisis of response to decide which way we will proceed, to decide, will we go into this new alternative future that Jesus is offering us, a future where you have no enemies, or will I hang on to the enemies To an us versus them. To ignore the promise. To forfeit the blessed life under the kingdom. To live informed by Jesus, but not transformed. And to reconstruct a faith that really bears minimal, if any, impact on my life or on others. You know, my friend Jay... Uh, he ended up leaving the church for some time. Shortly, you know, a couple years after I was baptized, he, um, he went through some some heartaches and pain in his life, and um, and he found himself caught up in this, this lifestyle, uh, as we all do, of coping with the pain. And there was literally a moment in his life where he was left homeless. That car that he had given me rides to church with was no more. He had no money. He had no family. He had burned so many bridges. And I remember him reaching out to me and, and uh, he, he, oddly enough, he was, kind of, he was close by where I lived. And I had reached out to him a couple times over the years and gotten no response, so I was a little hurt. But I remember him reaching out and, and just texting me, hey, like, can you help me with some basic supplies? He needed like toothpaste and a toothbrush. He had nothing. And I remember meeting him at this grocery store down the street from my house and we, we began this conversation again of 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 his relationship with God, his journey. And over the coming months, we would sit together, we would talk, we would have a meal together, we would open the Bible, we would pray together, we would walk together. And he began to hear the voice of God breaking through the silence again and offering him an alternative future, this promise of God to come back home. And I remember the process of of Jay being restored and and committing to the community of the church again and, and how odd it was that this guy who had helped me learn to follow Jesus, I was now helping some years later learn to follow Jesus again. And how just beautiful it was that God would let us shine light to one another in that way. Two very unlikely people together, because we're just sinners, saved by grace, given Jesus. And he's doing great, by the way. Uh, he, he got a great job, and he married a God-fearing woman, and, um, and he's raising a beautiful family. But, but Jesus comes to categorically change the world. And to bring a bridge-building community that is the church, his family, Founded in a cruciform lifestyle, one that says, I give myself up, I lay my life down for others. And on his way to the cross, as we take communion, actually on the cross, as we prepare to take communion, he again would embody this as he prays this prayer in Luke 23. It says, Jesus said, This is as he's hanging on the cross, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, interestingly enough, there was still a them for Jesus. For those who had disowned him, Judas or Peter or the others, for the religious high priest who had mocked him and spit on him and sentenced him, for the Roman soldiers who had beat him, who were now gambling for his clothes at his feet, making jokes about his suffering, for the criminals who hurled their insults at him as he lie suffering for them, all stood witness to his love for them as he prayed. And the cross still bears witness today, and he invites us to imagine once again an alternative future, to follow him, to live into his kingdom, which will always lead you to the cross in your life. To follow Jesus will lead you to carrying your own cross. And he gently leads us by his own example to reconstruct our faith by doing away with the categories of enemies. Enemies in flesh and blood, and to love all as God loves all and to be blessed for it. Let's pray.